0: We're talking about it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton
1: today. I'm
2: Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin, booking the guests in the newsroom. Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. The NHL playoffs are in full swing. It is non-stop hockey. Nice to see something that finally
0: unites us. Here's Scott Thompson.
3: Yeah, I'll second that. Except if you're in my house and you're a Bruins fan. But I digress. We can live with that. We can live with that division. Uh, good afternoon. It is 308. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. Welcome to the fun. Love to have you. Uh, Cheryl Crow uh, starting the show off in the top hours today because on this day, back in 2007, Cheryl Crow said a ban on using too much toilet paper should be introduced to help the environment. The singer suggested using, quote, only one square per visit. In the restroom, except of course on those pesky occasions when two or three would be required. Can you when imagine you ta- that, Scott? Can you imagine just like no. RCMP, Mountie comes at, sir, I need to check your bathroom. <laughs> it's the crap police. Uh, those pesky occasions where two or three could be required. I'm saying what? Two or three flushes? That's what you mean, right? You mean flushes? You don't mean like. Like squares, really. Uh, anyway, there you go. Feel free. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. It's Will's last week, you know. He's going on to, uh, on to bigger and better thin- things. i burned through more producers than you can shake a stick at. But it's nice to see the kids going on to something greater within the company, of course. We'll talk about that later in the week. Enough. All right, lots of stuff going on. Uh, as Kurt said, playoff hockey in full swing. Man, Edmonton and L.A. last night in OT. That was very exciting. Leafs and Tampa Bay. Uh, game four tonight. Who knows? <laughs> Who has any idea what the heck is going to happen there? I don't know. Uh, there you go. Uh, and what else we got? Oh, day six of the strike. We'll talk about that in just a second. And an interesting poll coming out of Angus Reed, And the majority of us, 60% don't give a rat's ass about King Chuck. Uh, whether, you know, on the Bills, not, don't care. Um, like him, uh, you know, whatever. It's really, really dropped since uh, Queen Elizabeth left us. We'll talk about that coming up a little later. Later on, this was also pretty humorous, uh, and I started writing all what I'm reading to you earlier this morning. So I wrote Tucker Carlson is out at Fox News. That takes care of the wacky extreme right. Now, what about the wacky extreme left in the media? And then all of a sudden, lo and behold, CNN announces that Don Lemon has been fired for misogynistic comments. So there you have it two extremes fired from the media. I'm pretty happy about that, if I don't mind saying so myself. Uh, I couldn't care less about either one of them. Uh, what else we got? Uh, new travel, uh, new changes to the air travelers' rights thing. We'll talk about that a little later, later on. Uh, but our, our, our norm, normal consultant, I've seen him on other medias, uh, is saying, this is nothing. This is nothing, and I don't know about you, but does anybody have any confidence in our government's transportation minister? Does anybody have any confidence left in the government? Uh all right. What else we got? Uh, oh, yeah. Here's another thing. Remember, we're talking about NATO and how uh, Justin Trudeau told secrets secretly NATO behind closed doors. we will never reach our and have no intention of reaching our spending targets. Although I wonder if he feels the same way about climate change, because we haven't hit those either. Interesting to see what he sees behind door says behind doors regarding that. Uh, anywhere, anyway, more freeloading on our allies as our allies are going to be taking uh, Canadians out of Sudan, who you of course heard the story there and the unrest that's going on as countries are bringing their people home and their embassies home. Uh, we're riding with the Americans and those in the United Kingdom because you know that's what we do. We're freeloaders here in Canada, but boy, are our hands ever clean? Uh, what else we got? Uh, oh, the German president is in. Uh, uh, Ottawa meeting with uh, the tr- uh, Justin Trudeau and the Trudeau Foundation continues to be at the center of turmoil. Uh, they they wanted the Auditor General to uh, investigate them, but then the Auditor General says they're not going to do it. I don't know. And the uh, Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board votes to stop using names at schools today. Man, oh man, Uh, between big boob teachers and not teaching about the queen and whatever, can we please get a handle on our school boards? They seem to be out of control. All right, uh, let's talk about the strike. Here's CP's John Kennedy and what he has to say about uh, what's going on as we enter day six.
4: The Public Service Alliance of Canada says more than 100,000 of its staff remain on strike, some of whom will move their picket lines today to strategic locations more likely to have an impact on the federal government. National President Chris Aylward says Ottawa presented an offer on Saturday afternoon, which the union countered with its own proposal that same day. Yet the Office of Treasury Board President Mona Fortier says it made a second proposal on Saturday that the union had not responded to by late Sunday. John Kennedy, The Canadian Press.
3: Um, Strategic locations? What does that mean? The airport? Are they brave enough to go there? Um, Yeah, we'll see what happens. All right, here is what Chris uh, Aylward had to say, uh, the president of the union, which is representing the federal striking workers.
5: This screams of the incompetence of Mona Forte as the president of Treasury Board and her team. The prime minister has been in the media saying that we need to get to a deal, and that he was hopeful that we would get to a deal. The Prime Minister has done nothing. Our members are fed up. Our bragging teams are fed up. We're waiting for the employer for days. Thursday night to Saturday afternoon, no response from Treasury Board. Treasury Board and the Prime Minister needs to do something about that, and they need to be serious about these negotiations and not waiting for over 24 hours before they respond to our demands. That is totally unacceptable.
3: All right, there you have it. That is the president of the union that is representing uh, the striking federal workers and where they are in, um, in talks. Do we have a caller on the line, Will? 905 uh, uh, 645 Mike's on the line. Mike, what are your thoughts?
6: Hey Scott, I, you know I just heard on the radio a couple times today that they took away that uh, the Ryerson name of that uh, for being involved in the residential schools. I'm just wondering when we're going to take away the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Airport name for him being involved in the residential schools. It seems like uh, no one wants to talk about that, eh?
3: That's a very good question, Mike. Thanks for the call. Lines are always open, 905-645-3221. Many have pointed to exactly what Mike has just pointed to. Uh, this is a slippery slope once we go down here. Uh, I'd rather say, let's tell the other side of the story. Let's put up another statute. Let's put up another name. Let's put up a plaque that explains what's going on. Rather than tearing away a culture or rather than tearing away a history uh, that some Canadians... Uh, <laughs> we've been claiming for whatever we don't have an identity. Now that we seem to have one, let's tell the story, rather than trying to erase it. Just my opinion. All right, F1 has announced uh, that 100% sustainable drop-in fuel will go hand-in-hand with their new 2026 engines coming up that season. They include a nifty video on Twitter right now as part of the announcement. Um, And what does drop-in fuel mean? How does this all work? To talk more, our uh, Guru, uh, Eric Thomas is with us. Raceline Radio Network, you can hear every Sunday night right here on CHML and is with us now.
2: Eric, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Well, we're good, Scooter. Nice to be uh, to back on w- on with you here. And it just, it just kind of underlines, and i got a bunch of questions there, it just underlines the simple fact that our sport, our favorite sport, has been leading the way in finding different ways of getting around fossil fuels because being environmentally responsible and everything else like this and, and kind of addressing the battery idea of what that's going to do to the future of not only F1 racing but your car, my car, that truck over there, and that truck over there, and trains and planes and automobiles and everything else like that. So it's a bit of a breakthrough and what drop in basically means is they're going to they're going to come up with a fuel that's made from carbon um, in the atmosphere, out of CO two, and also from cooking garbage, which is another way of getting rid of the landfill crisis and the landfill problem, turning it into uh, to a one hundred percent renewable fuel. But the beauty of this is, is that the major oil manufacturers and and petroleum companies are going to be involved in this, and it will work with our existing internal combustion engines. So you can use the same pumps, you can use the same platforms, and instead of having to rely on very, very impractical all-electric plug-in cars going into the future. This is a 100% clean, green, uh, biodegradable fuel they're going to come up with. It's going it's to be a revolutionary in terms of being a whole lot more practical, not only for racing engines, but for your car and my car, too, which is pretty exciting.
3: I find this incredibly fascinating, Eric, and here is why. Because uh, for the last few years, and we've seen that there's an electric F1 uh, series where they race electric F1 cars, and many have talked about that's the way it's going, that's the way it's going. We talked about uh, engine manufacturers in F1 that were leaving the sport because they were going to spend more uh, on EVs and that sort of thing. Now you're talking about, not an electric vehicle, but an actual fuel for internal combustion engines. This is a completely different discussion.
2: And this is something they need to develop. And, you know, this is part of the hybrid technology. Let's remember that Formula One cars and train locomotives are hybrids. And, of course, you know, you, you can buy hybrids. My wife has a hybrid. Uh, and, and the internal combustion engine charges the batteries when they're full and they're charged up. It shuts the engine off. And you're running on battery powered like a great big golf cart, and you're not polluting the air because the engine's off. So the engine is off half the time. That's another part of the technology. What this does is, and, and the beauty of this is, Scott, is that you are don't need to do anything to your car's fuel system or anything. You'll go up to the pump, and instead of pumping fossil fuel or gasoline made and cracked from oil, this is fuel that'll go into your tank, into your car, into your injectors, and it'll run as an internal combustion engine. You don't need to ditch your car, get rid of your car, and buy a battery-powered car, which is going to be horribly impractical, especially in the cold winters that we have here, and not enough charging stations, and not enough range, and all those things that we talk about. This is a game-changer. It really, really is, and I and and I'm glad that the the fuel manufacturers out there are involved in this, and they're going to be able to share this with the world. Billions and billions of cars and trucks around the world. Let's remember trains as well run on diesel. They're hybrid as well. They run the the engines, the diesel engines turn generators, which generate electricity, which turn the wheels, and airplanes as well, of course, run on kerosene, and that's another type of fossil fuel. So What this is going to do is it it is going to be a whole lot more impractical. You don't have to worry about your car running out of charge halfway to where you want to go. you know, And and all those problems we've talked about on why all battery plug-in isn't going to work, let alone the simple fact that if everybody plugs their cars in, the power grid's going to go out, and you better get used to power outages because that's what's going to happen if everyone plugs their cars in. If they go with this, they won't need to do that. That's the beauty of it.
3: How is F1 the body that is bringing this forth, as opposed to government, energy people, whatever. Because, like I said, my questions here are, why not just go electric? That's what they were doing with the other division. Instead, what they're doing is they're advancing the fuel rather than advancing batteries and EVs. Well, they're doing both. But nobody's ever talked about advancing the fuel before. Like, like F1 seems to be the first one doing this, and as you mentioned, if they can clean the fuel and put this into everyday cars my goodness, this completely yep. advances the discussion
2: It does and what, what you also have to understand with uh, understanding this whole process is is that eventually it will all go battery. But you can't have something that is a a huge piece of uh, that weighs thousands of pounds inside your car, which is a a real hazard, especially if you have a crash. There's problems with them catching fire and all all the other impracticalities that we know of. It'll eventually go that way. But, Scott, I think for all practical purposes, you and I will long be planted by the time it all goes battery, and that includes the racing game as well. The F1 guys have always said that we need to be on the cutting edge of this and they've got themselves together and they've got the meetings with the manufacturers out there to try to make this work and if it'll work in an F1 engine by 2026 or when they go to this, their new hybrid engines, it'll work for you and me. And the other thing about it and maybe it's selfish for you and I being race fans, the cars are going to sound the same. That's I one know. of the detriments of the sport, right? Yeah. If if yeah. electric, they don't make any noise. Right?
3: I know. I, I, you know, I, sorry, uh, electric F1, I don't know. Uh, it's like watching golf carts go around a track. Exactly. But again, right. yeah. I, I found this just astounding that it's F1 that's leading this charge. And of course, it's with the money and could. the research and development, it is absolutely yeah. perfect. All right, Eric, another great conversation. Eric Thomas, Raceline Radio Network. Make sure you're listening Sunday nights right here, CHML, for all of this. Eric, have yourself a, a great day. Be well.
2: Don't be foolish, buddy. We'll take care.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
7: be loving you huh. till we're 70
3: that's
7: Ed it on.
3: that's Marvin Man, uh, and we and we just started talking about AI and music uh, in the last little while. Uh, and, and what is it about Marvin Gaye that the guy's always getting ripped off? Uh, or maybe it's just that subliminal influence we don't even realize what an impact this man's music is making on people. Will Weber uh, blending the two together there? Ed Sheeran's thinking out loud and Marvin Gaye's "Let's Get It On." Yes, there is a lawsuit, and I guess a jury will decide uh, whose song it is. Name that tune. Let's. Bring in Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music. He is with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, I'm doing okay. Yes. So, what is it about uh, Marvin Gaye that I mean? Is this guy, uh, you know, uh, subliminally influencing us the way we don't even realize it? What is uh, this song? Uh, this man's song seem to be involved in this sort of chatter.
8: Well, you know what? I think this lawsuit's a crock. I, I, I really do. And the reason I say that is because it was filed in 2017. Around the same time, the estate of Marvin Gaye was successfully suing Robin Thicke and Pharrell Williams yeah. for infringing on um, Got to Get It On, um, the Marvin Gaye song, because the two songs felt the same, because they had the same vibe and feel. And a, a jury agreed and awarded the estate of Marvin Gaye something like $5 million, even after appeal so when this happened back then i I said to somebody who covers this kind of legal legal issues that uh, i was very concerned because this was going to open the gates the floodgates for all these ambulance chasing uh lawyers who were going to go after go after contemporary artists claiming that they ripped off their old heritage artists and 2017 is when the blurred lines trial happened and 2017 Mm -hmm. is also when The same group of people, the Marvin Gaye estate, sued Ed Sheeran for thinking out loud. So they were on a bit of a roll, and they decided, well, we won one, and now we're going to get see if we can get another. And you can put these two songs side by side, and you will find certain similarities. And those similarities, to my ear, are in the chord progression. And guess what? You cannot copyright a chord progression. Hmm. If you could, you would take control of the basic foundational building blocks of songwriting. And to me, this is a lot of, of what I hear. And you, it, the, the, the gay estate, I think, is just doing everybody a disservice by trotting out this lawsuit and getting other ambulance-chasing lawyers to pay attention and to um, get their hopes up.
3: Is there not a way to actually confirm this sort of thing? Doesn't it have to be so many notes in a row, what have you? How do they actually do this?
8: Well, what you have to do is uh, when when it comes to um, when it when it comes to something like this, um, it's it all comes down to the musical notation. So what they do in court is they um, write everything out. So you can look at, look at it on paper, mm-hmm. and then they bring in a bunch of musicologists and music experts and music theory experts and have them compare, compare the published version of the song, which is what you see on paper, um, to the one that's, that's apparently being infringed. And if a certain number of points or a certain number of elements uh, seem to correspond, well, then they may award damages for the plaintiff. Um, But uh, again, it's become very, very blurry, no pun intended, over the blurred lines thing, because there were only a couple of notes here and there that matched up. But the melody was was different. The chord changes were different. Yet the feel was quite a bit the same. And that was done deliberately. It was done as an homage. It was done to honor the the legacy of Marvin Gaye. You know, he was an influence on, on so many people. And, and, you know, just like people want to write songs in the style of the Beatles, somebody decided that they wanted to write songs in the style of Marvin Gaye. But apparently you can't do that without getting sued.
1: Hmm.
3: Uh, it's interesting. A few years ago, uh, my niece, who's obviously much younger than I am, introduced me to somebody. And I uh, eventually saw them on Saturday Night Live and completely uh, stunned Leon Bridges, um, a, a great soul singer. And as I'm listening to this album, I'm thinking he's like one or two notes away from you could list every song that this was ever influenced by. However, stop short of actually completing the riff, per se. This goes on. All the time, people always influence other people. You can't copyright a feel, can you? Well, this is what
8: a lot of people are wondering now since the blurred line thing, the blurred lines thing. And since this trial has, uh, has started, they started jury selection today. Uh, they're doing this in Manhattan. Most of these uh, cases are tried in the United States because that's where the plaintiffs seem to have the most success. And what's interesting about this particular case is that it's being overseen by a 95-year-old judge. And I'm not being wow. ageist here, but how many 95-year-olds have good hearing?
1: <laughs>
8: how many 95-year-olds have a, a, a com- comprehensive knowledge of uh, what goes into the composition of, of modern music? So it's, it's rather interesting, all the things that are lined up for this particular trial. And there's a lot riding on it because, again, if somebody rules that this song is infringing on intellectual property because it feels too much like that song, well, songwriters are already terrified that they're going to get crucified if they they write a song and it just happens to sound like something in the past.
3: Is uh, this Ed Shearing song more like Marvin Gaye's "Let Get It On," "Let's Get It On," than Robin Thicke's was version of, of of ripping off Marvin Gaye was one? Okay, I can see that one. I can't see this one. Are they both vague to you?
8: I, I, I can They're both vague to me. They, they really are. Again, if you listen to the, if there's, there's no common lyrics. Um, I, I don't know if the notes are the same. They might be in a different key, for example. I don't know if they match up at all. I, you know, the chord progressions sound like they you know, could be similar, but, but again, that doesn't matter. Chord progressions, um, beats like a four-four like a beat or a waltz time, mm-hmm. they cannot be uh, copyrighted. You can't copyright a song title, uh, and, and you can't copyright guitar riffs because again, mm-hmm. guitar riffs are, are what—they're just a, it's a chord progression. So uh, it, you know everybody is going to be watching this particular case, and if, it, if, if, they, if it, they rule in the in favor of, of the Marvin Gaye estate, it is going to cast an even bigger chill over the songwriting community. Because look, there are only twelve notes in the Western scale, and there are only so many ways you could put those twelve notes into a pleasing. A combination, and there are only so many ways that you could put those uh, pleasing combinations into a way uh, in a way that sounds like a, like like you know a soul music or a love song. So so it's, the mu- music is not infinite. There's there's only so many combinations out there, and it is you know it, it, it's if you have millions of songwriters writing millions of songs, there are going to be occasional you know duplication. So, you know, what, what do we do about it?
3: And we haven't even uh, scraped the surface of AI in music. We'll talk about that at another time. Alan Cross with us, host of the Ongoing History of New Music. Ed Shearing's song, Thinking Out Loud, a ripoff of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Here we go again. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
1: You're welcome. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is
0: Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's Talk 900
3: All right. there's lots of, uh, always been lots of chatter around the monarchy in Canada over the years. Is it relevant? Do we want it? Do we not want it? Who cares? Who does care? And, and, you know, as long as Queen Elizabeth was still uh, walking around, you know, okay, fine, leave it the way it is. But once Queen Elizabeth passed away and that long reign was finally over, it seems that attitudes have changed quite a bit. As in, three out of five Canadians not really ready to accept King Charles. And that kind of means everything, whether it's on the money whether it's singing god save the king have times changed and our opinions changed in a post queen elizabeth world let's bring in john Rowe, research associate with angus reed and with us now john thanks for the time hope you're well
6: yeah i hope you're well too scott thanks for having me on
3: so give us a breakdown here john how things have changed uh before the queen had passed away and after the queen had passed away
6: yeah, so we uh, we, we polled uh, asking whether or not people support and recognizing King Charles. Uh, of course, this is a question that we've asked uh, specifically about Charles himself, even prior to him kind of accepting uh, the role, or I guess stepping into the role as king after the death of his mother last year. In uh, five Canadians, as you said, oppose recognizing Charles as king, uh, and that number has been higher and it's been a bit lower, but it's been somewhat consistently around that level for the last three years or so. Even prior to the Queen's passing, people weren't really that excited to see Charles kind of step into that role as, as King of Canada. Of course, uh, Queen Elizabeth was much more well-liked than Charles prior prior to her death. About three in five Canadians had a favorable opinion of, of the Queen, and people were very more supportive of recognizing her as Queen of Canada prior to Charles' passing, Uh, But, yeah, it's really this kind of this shift now, this kind of generational shift to Charles. uh, It's not being accepted or welcomed as much uh, from Canadians.
3: Why do you think that is? How come we is this about the monarchy? Uh, Because many question the monarchy. Or is this about the individual who's taken the place?
6: I think with this kind of sea change in opinion, I think it really is kind of the individual taking its place. Like, As I said, like three in five Canadians had very kind of favorable views of Queen Elizabeth prior to her passing, and there was quite a few people that said they would be like quite sad uh, with with her death. And there was quite a bit of outpouring of emotion when uh, during after her death in September last year, compared to Charles, who has just not been as well liked by Canadians. uh, We asked how how do you view him favorably, unfavorably? Half of Canadians have an unfavorable view, whereas only three in ten say they have a favorable view of him. Uh, One quarter say they don't they don't have an opinion. So it's it's not quite, like, it's just that he's not as well-liked as his mother, really, at the end of the day, by Canadians. Do you think him,
3: uh, much of this has to do with way back when, with Princess Diana?
6: I I personally think so. It's hard to tell because we don't have, uh, like, our polling data doesn't go back that far. Um, but you, you look at kind of the appeal or, I guess, the favorability ratings of Camilla as well, and she is also very not well-liked by Canadians. And if you look at kind of who has the most negative opinions of Camilla and kind of Charles, it's older Canadians, kind of Canadians who were probably old enough to remember those headlines, to remember mm-hmm. those, uh, the, the kind of scandalous stories that came out from uh, the kind of dissolution of his, for, uh, Charles's first marriage to Diana, who was, of course, a very beloved figure uh, across the world.
3: It'd be interesting to what uh, the numbers would be if uh, Canadians were asked, or even the world. Can what if we just moved right to Prince William?
6: Yeah, and so they, the William and Kate are viewed more favorably by Canadians. Uh, more than half of Canadians have a favorable view of both, basically. Uh, but we kind of we broke down that data, so we asked as well, like, should Canada continue as a constitutional monarchy uh, for generations to come? And half of Canadians say no. We we don't think it. Canada should find some way out of this. We, should, we shouldn't be a constitutional monarchy. Uh, and when you look at the people who say, no, we shouldn't be a constitutional monarchy, they have a lesser opinion of William and Kate. They Less than half of Canadians in, in those groups say that uh, they have a favorable view of them. So there is uh, they are viewed more favorably, but it tends to come from people who kind of support the monarchy in general, I would say.
3: It would be interesting to find out if the public was to pick the next king or queen, who they would pick.
6: Yeah, and we've I, I I feel like we've asked that question in the past, so we didn't ask it this time around. But I think it it is like it, whatever it is, it, Canadians just don't like Charles and Camilla as much, yeah. and the, I guess the the appeal of the monarchy is a lot less. So when whoever is at the top is just not nearly as well liked of a figure as, say, Queen Elizabeth was.
3: John Rowe with his research associate with Angus Reed. According to a new poll, uh, three of five Canadians not really that, uh, fond over King Charles when compared to, uh, King, or sorry, Queen Elizabeth. John, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Scott. We all know what the state of travel has been uh, in this country since uh, the global pandemic broken. Uh, and it seems we keep getting mini- uh, announcements, news conferences from the Minister of Transportation, but I'm not sure things are really getting better. Uh, the Transportation Minister, Omar al Cabra today said the use of loopholes around traveler compensation has left the government no choice but to strengthen passenger rights rules. What's different today from, yesterday? let's bring in Gabor Lukacs, president Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, and with us now, Gabor. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
7: Good afternoon. It seems
3: uh, we're getting a lot of announcements from this minister over the year, over the uh, last year or so on the deficiencies that we're seeing. Is any what's different today than yesterday, Gabor? What? How is this? How are these rules different today?
7: The proposed rules that we heard about today are alarming because they are weakening passenger protection in Canada. The Minister seeks to perpetuate existing loopholes relating to the required for safety excuse for refusing to pay compensation to passengers and is adding an additional loophole that allows airlines to avoid paying a penalty if they sign a compliance agreement, if they commit in writing to behave going forward and walk away skate-free, even if they are caught breaking the law. Uh, In addition, the government is putting in place a uh, secretive uh, process for adjudication of passenger complaints, that where passengers don't don't have access to uh, full justice, it is not based on evidence, just on information that the airline provides, and it is secret. So you as a member of the media or we as consumer protection organizations or any member of the public cannot access the documents on the basis of which the government uh, grants or denies compensation to passengers.
3: So what is the transportation minister selling here then?
7: He is selling uh, a uh, bag of vinegar in a uh, sugar wrapping. Uh, the <laughs> minister is essentially seeking to create the impression that he's now solving a problem, which everybody understands the problem, but the solution that the minister proposes is more akin to just putting a large pile of complaints in a garbage can, but in a more fancy uh, legal-like form. So what I anticipate will happen is many complaints are going to be dismissed, even though they have some merits. Because the airline will just provide some kind of um, explanation, and that would be good enough for the purposes of this kangaroo court that the minister is setting up.
3: Uh, an NDB critic that I saw on uh, on the news on this said that this is going to cost too much. It's just bloated.
7: It is also going to cost it. It's uh, the uh, certainly the having a system where you have such a backlog, which already developed, uh, is a serious problem, and and you cannot solve it just by having a more a different complaint process. It, what Canada would need is to actually uh, harmonize Canada's uh, passenger protection regime with the European Union's gold standard where the norm is payment of compensation and there are only very few very clearly defined exceptions that are very well understood and uh, that way the airlines cannot weasel out. What we see currently is that the list of exceptions will be set up by the federal regulator, which is uh, known to be very cozy with the airlines, and there's no indication that the required for safety reasons uh, loophole or exception would not be retained in this new list of exceptions. The government is essentially um, doing a lot of a restructuring of how the, 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 the uh, legally administratively the framework is set up, but they don't really touch the essential, the, the structural elements.
3: Uh, it, it seems that we've had a few of these announcements over time with, with very obviously frustrated travelers uh, and such. Why is this announcement coming now? I mean, it just seems we get another one, then another one, and then another one, but nothing really does the job.
7: Um, that 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 is indeed a problem, and and, and part of a part of the uh, problem is that uh, the government knowingly makes these types of uh, changes to the law while consumer protection. Um, groups, consumer, consumer advocacy groups are warning the government, caution the government, don't do it. It's going to cause harm. Uh, you know, the, earlier this morning the minister was asked whether it was not foreseeable with the APPR was broken and he was humming and hoeing, but actually we did inform the government. We did publish a 52-page report back in February 2019 that predicted many of the loopholes. So uh, it is not that, that, that it was not possible to foresee these issues, rather that the government just doesn't want to listen because, uh, with many of these legislations, uh, it is the airlines that hold the drafter's pen.
3: Uh, so you feel this is more window dressing than anything.
7: It, it is. It is not. It is worse than window dressing. It is window dressing plus weakening of. Passenger rights. And the reason this is so disappointing is that you referred earlier to the transport critic, Mr. Buckrock's uh, work. And last month, he did table a private member's bill, Bill C327, that actually would fix the problem, would align Canada's regime with the European Union's gold standard. And the government has chosen not to adopt it, not to incorporate it. And that is very disappointing. We have a petition going on the House of Commons website with more than 1,900 signatures so far calling on the federal government to adopt Mr. Bacharach's bill, Bill C-327, to solve the problem finally. But I'm not holding my breath that the government is going to listen.
3: Only got a few seconds left here, Gabor. Your thoughts on passports? We certainly know where we were with that uh, post-pandemic and the, uh, the federal uh, public service strike. Your thoughts on that passports travel?
7: Um, you know, this is not really a passenger rights question. I certainly have my own views and, and political uh, sympathies I, I always sympathize in general uh, with workers who are on strike um, and and um, call on people to to be patient with the individual employees but of course as a passenger it can be quite frustrating that you may be left without a passport. Generally, don't leave it to the last minute. Renew your passport as soon as you know when you will be traveling next. don't wait just a few weeks or months before it.
3: Gabor Lukacs with us, President Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, talking about uh, changes that are apparently used to close loopholes around air travel. Gabor, as always, thanks for the
7: time. Be well. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton
0: Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: All right, Democracy Watch is calling for an independent ethics inquiry into the Prime Minister giving a contract to his friend David Johnston to, of course, talk about uh, Chinese in, uh, Chinese Communist Party interference in our election. Also, the Trudeau Foundation, at one time, uh, coming apart at the seams, the board all uh, resigns. Uh, the Prime Minister blames it on Canadians and divisive politi- uh politics seems the division was in the within the board itself uh when they couldn't return uh, a donation from a individual who allegedly had ties to the chinese communist party no person no company no nothing can't return the money the board's had enough they're done uh who's going to investigate the trudeau foundation we certainly remember the we scandal lots to talk about with Duff Conacher, co-founder of democracy watch he is with us now duff thanks for the time i hope you're well
9: Yes, hope you are as well.
3: Thank you. Before we get to your into your uh, ask for an inquiry, uh, your thoughts on, uh, we certainly remember the Wii Scandal and, and where that went, uh, who investigates uh, the Trudeau Foundation? It seemed way back when they were looking for an audit, and now the Auditor General says that's out of, out of their lane, so who, what happens next?
9: Well, unfortunately, uh, although $125 million was uh, given to that foundation as an endowment by the uh, Jean Chrétien government, that foundation is um, not accountable for how it uses that money and how it operates, at least uh, not accountable to the Auditor General. So they get to choose their own auditors. And that's always dangerous. Um, you shouldn't have any institution that's been given public money or serves a public purpose to be outside of the realm of accountability laws of transparency and ethics and and accountability to the the watchdogs. Because that usually leads to uh, debacles and, and boondoggles and waste and abuse.
3: Uh, what's the difference between this and the we scandal? I mean, obviously the situation is different, but uh, are there similarities between what we're going through with the Trudeau Foundation and and the we scandal of a while back?
9: There are similarities, um, in that, uh, you just have this intertwining of the prime minister with an outside organization and the prime minister's family with an outside organization. uh, with the, the WE scandal, though, it was the Prime Minister's actions and former Finance Minister Bill Morneau's actions, and they are subject to the Conflict of Interest Act. And so the Ethics Commissioner could examine it. Um, the Commissioner found that Morneau was a friend of the Kielbergers and and had family involved in the WE charity and so should not have been at the table approving the grant to the WE charity. Let the Prime Minister off, although de has challenged that Uh, Decision in court, and the court case is continuing. Uh, The government tried to have it thrown out, but the courts have allowed it to proceed. And we're challenging the commissioner's ruling that uh, Trudeau was properly at the table handing that grant uh, to We Charity, even though his spouse was an ambassador for We Charity and his family members had been paid by We Charity. And and he had attended We Charity events and said he was also friends with the Kielbrugger's So, uh, yeah, we'll see where that court case goes. But, yeah, there's lots of similarities where the prime minister gets intertwined with these outside organizations and then tries to hand them public money. Uh, Not in the
3: Auditor General's lane to look at this foundation, the Trudeau Foundation?
9: No, unfortunately, it's not a government organization um, that uh, is clearly subject to the Auditor general law because it was endowed the money. So it's not regularly spending government money. The government does appoint uh, up to three board members and up to three uh, members of the foundation, which is kind of this overarching group that choose board members. Uh, and so it is quasi-governmental in that way, but unfortunately not clearly subject to the Auditor General Act And because it's spending an endowment, not spending government money regularly. It should be brought under, like any institution that's funded by the public or has a public purpose, public function, it should be under the accountability regime that uh, people have fought for decades to establish to stop unethical and and wasteful behavior. But uh, unfortunately, it's not clearly under it and gets to choose its own auditors as a result. Uh, democracy uh, Democracy
3: Watch calling for an independent ethics inquiry into the prime minister giving uh, the contract to David Johnson to head up the committee to look into election interference. The last two elections from the Chinese Communist Party uh, Play devil's. I'm going to uh, play devil's advocate here, Duff. Since this is a committee, can he not choose who he wants, which is why everyone's wanting a public inquiry where uh, obviously everybody gets to say.
9: Uh, not a committee. It's just David Johnson. You mean a special rapporteur? Um, he is uh, um, David Johnson. According to, to David Johnson and and Trudeau, according to Trudeau, are friends. And very clearly, the Conflict of Interest Act prohibits the Prime Minister and other ministers and top government officials from doing anything to help their families, themselves, or their friends. And so it's a clear violation. And uh, we. We've been hoping, as many have, that David Johnson would get it and step down. But even if he did step down, Trudeau still went through the action of handing him a government contract. And Mary Ng, a Trudeau cabinet minister, was found guilty of handing a government contract to a friend, her friend Amanda Alvaro, by the Ethics Commissioner just a few months ago. And this is just as clear a situation. He handed a government contract where the public will be paying money to David Johnson, and David Johnson's a friend of Trudeau. Even if they're just family friends, if that was the finding, you can't improperly further the private interests of any person or entity. And it's clearly improper for the prime minister to hand a government contract to a family friend. So he would be found guilty in that case. So unfortunately, we can't get a ruling right now because there is no ethics commissioner. There was one. He resigned. Trudeau handpicked a successor, an interim commissioner until a, a full-time one would be appointed. That woman, Martine R- Richard, was the sister-in-law of Trudeau cabinet minister and old friend Dominic LeBlanc. It's mm-hmm. a layer cake of conflicts of interest. She yeah. rightly resigned, as David Johnson should get the signal, you resign when you have these kind of ties to the prime minister and you're examining the prime minister's actions. And so now there's no ethics commissioner to rule in our complaint. It's It's really, it's just a layer cake of conflicts of interest. It just so symptomatic of this uh, Trudeau liberal government, that just everything that they've done is wrapped up in this situation in terms of abuses of power and unethical behavior. We know that David
3: Johnston is, is heading up looking into election interference by the Chinese Communist Party. If he decides by May, which he may, that a public inquiry is needed, what are the chances of David Johnston heading that up?
9: Oh, uh, boy, that would be even worse because then he would be... But that position. can't
3: happen. Could it? Ha- could that happen, Duff? Is that possible or just if, too many if other if people happens, involved?
9: We, we would refile the complaint right away that he cannot do this job. He's a friend of the prime minister. He'd be judging the prime minister's actions. It's just so clear. It's prohibited under the Conflict of Interest Act. And he's prohibited from ruling on Trudeau as a friend under the Conflict of Interest Act. And he is covered right now as a special advisor to Trudeau. He's covered by the Conflict of Interest rules. So I don't know what's wrong with the Prime Minister and and Johnston. Too late for the Prime Minister. We already appointed Johnston. Not too late for Johnston to realize, wait a second, I'm breaking a federal law, the Conflict of Interest Act, by judging my friend, the Prime Minister. It's not allowed. I can't do it. It's prohibited by law. And I will be violating the law if I do it. So I better resign now and call for a public inquiry, as many, many, many people have pointed out to him. I mean, this is the guy who wrote a book called Trust about how Mm -hmm. institutions could reestablish the public's trust and restore it. And yet he's doing this, this thing that is not trustworthy in any way.
3: Amazing. Jeff Conacher with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too.
0: If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
3: All right, we certainly know uh, the situation in regard to NATO, and our allies have been calling us freeloaders for a while. Uh, we're a rich country, yet we're not contributing what we need. All of a sudden, a balloon floats over Canadian airspace. Nobody's even aware of it until it, <laughs> until it flies over uh, the United States. States. The rest is history, as they say. Uh, Then we fast forward to the Pentagon leaks of uh, a couple of weeks ago, and the Prime Minister entangled in that leak, in which he apparently said secretly to NATO officials, according to the Washington Post, that Canada will never uh, reach its uh, NATO targets. I wonder if we'll ever reach reach our climate change targets. That's another discussion, isn't it? How damaging is that? Why doesn't he say that to us? When asked, he did deny it let's bring in erica simpson associate professor international relations western university and as a piece coming out on this in the hill times erica thank you for the time hope you're well thank you so um, how damaging is something like this to say the word never i mean obviously times have changed since the cold war we're in a different space now how can you say the word never how damaging is that
1: well, they've been saying since 2006, the NATO allies, there's 31 of them now, that they would reach the 2.0% uh, the target. And actually, there's only nine countries that have reached it this year. The, the number one, of course, is Greece, which is spending 3.76% of its um, GDP. And then the United States is spending 3.47 percent. So of course the U.S. has a huge gross domestic product, and so that means they're spending the most in the world. So they're spending far more. It's the way that they measure it that is questionable, Scott. And I think people, including uh, 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 Trudeau, back in 2017, and the Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan, back then were saying that we need to measure the the level of commitment differently. So Canada needs to include other things that we do like defend the Arctic, like UN peacekeeping. Uh, we need to, the, the Americans uh, include what they spend on Israel. Canada does not include what they spend on developing countries. So it's kind of a game that they're playing behind the scenes. And we can play that game where we'll lose or we can play the per capita game where actually Canada spends per capita a lot. So every one of your listeners spends uh, nearly $600 a year on defense. And uh, that that's still guess, that's you know, still
4: far
3: less that's still far less than another a lot of industrialized uh, uh, nations in the do. The United
1: States, the, the and, Americans spend always four to one more than Canada, and that's been true since the 1990s, since the end of the Cold War. So, you so know, this I'm is all a move. We're not a so ladder, this is, but I am trying to argue that yeah, um, yeah. that that we we are, we can be criticized, but there's many other allies. That are also spending uh, less than
3: 2%. Yeah, but I, I'm not sure they're quite as rich a country as what Canada is. Why are we not putting the money into our military as opposed to just sending money to Ukraine? That way, at least, we get something back from this. Um, it, it seems that whenever we're losing the game, we change the rules. And you talked about other things, but again, we're not really, we really are uh, underqualified to help in Haiti. We're, we're depleted. Uh, we really don't have a hand. on 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 the northern uh, border in the arctic and such so uh, you know are we really contributing that way are we falling short there and this is just all a game of smoke and mirrors
1: with all due respect scott we're going to be buying uh, 88 f-35 fighter jets that will be delivered in 2026 so that is going to cost billions of dollars. The Canadian but government has becomes... increased its spending um, to 62.3 billion in new military spending. So I'm not sure how much you want to spend. If you want to keep spending more and more on Ukraine, sure. But we're already giving. We're already giving uh, money for uh, a new uh, t- new type of light armored vehicle. We're not giving the the labs that are made here. The really modern labs. But my concern would be if those are captured. If we start. To give it our really modern labs, and they're captured like they were in Afghanistan. Then all that <laughs> technology you just gave it to China, you just gave it to Russia for them to copy. So, so we're doing okay. are good enough right now.
3: Hmm? So so well, what we, we leopards are working? Um, that's the so point. They
1: need to be repaired, but that's that's not something that you can say that it, you can be critical of Trudeau. Of that, you should be critical of the Department of National Defense for not keeping not spending money on the leopards to keep them in good shape so it is shocking mm. that DND hasn't So you getting back to Trudeau um, so I'm just wondering how much do you want to spend Scott because you keep saying I want to spend more on this
3: No, I never said I want to, I want to spend, more, to spend on that. more on Erica. I never said I wanted to spend more on anything. What I'm asking okay. you is what I'm asking you is that a lot of people around the world are saying that we're freeloading and that we're not spending enough. So if I'm to interpret what you're saying, we're fine. We're doing our share. Do you feel that we're doing our share?
1: I, first of all, like to know who who have you met lately that's not in Canada that says that Canada, after Afghanistan... Are we we doing
3: our share, Erica? Are we doing our share?
1: We're doing our share. But what I think is of no material, what what I'm worried about is that you're telling people that all around the world they're saying that we're laggards and we're not spending enough, when actually because we have such a huge gross domestic product, we are spending huge amounts of money. There's a big article today by uh, uh, Senator Doug Roche condemning canada for spending so much on defense spending in the hill times as well so i mean i know i know you're arguing that we should spend more but how much more would you like to spend and then what do you say to people with i'm not arguing at, at all about healthcare.
3: spending more erica i'm bringing you on as a guest to ask you if you feel we are doing enough on the world stage when it comes already, to our I military got
1: that, that in my opinion We are doing enough spending on the military right now, but we need to examine how NATO measures its commitment, and we need NATO to take into account that Canada spends on the Arctic, Canada spends on UN peacekeeping, Canada has spent on Mali lately on peacekeeping operations, and we do research on biodefenses against disease. So these are all ways that that we're committing to NATO, but it is not measured in this Kind of primitive old style way of just saying, well, how much are you spending? Is it 1.7, 1.8, 1.9? Or is it 2%? So So we um,
3: need to examine NATO more than we need to examine our military?
1: No, I'm saying, well, we'll both. We have to examine the military, of course. We also have to examine the NATO, how it measures commitment. So commitment to NATO, Canada. All all right, Erica, we're. Since 1949. Anyway, thank you, Scott. I I like speaking to you and, and have a great day.
3: You too. Erica Simpson, Associate Professor, International Relations, Western University. Whenever we don't like the rules or we can't win by them, we like to change them. But look at it from this angle. Man.
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: So it was interesting. Um, earlier this morning, I wrote these notes. And it's funny how the story just evolved. Uh, Tucker Carlson out at Fox News. Which, you know, I'm not a fan of Tucker at all. He's no no harm here from this point of view. Uh, Tucker Carlson out at Fox News. That takes care of the wacky extreme right. Now, what about the wacky extreme left? And then moments from then, after that decision, CNN announced, well, no, Don Lemon announced that he had been fired from CNN. Uh, misogynistic comments. And I remember very vividly him being on the air and saying that uh, women uh, past a certain age were past this prime. I think he was referring to Nikki Haley a Republican uh, candidate at that time. But either way, two big parting of ways uh, on both the left and the right media. Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age, and is with us now. Jeff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks for inviting me. So your thoughts on this, two uh, high-profile media divorces on each end of the spectrum. Uh, They're different, but they're the same, I guess, in the sense that they're not there. But uh, what are your thoughts as you hear all of this unwind?
4: Well, it's interesting, especially at Fox, partly because after they decided to settle with the, the, uh, the voting machine company, Dominion Voting Systems, the value of Fox stock today dropped $590 million. Wow. That's a big, that's a big jump. And the other problem is that um, viewers, although there's a core audience for viewers on evening talk shows on television in America, those numbers are soft. The audience is going more to where you are, which is, later afternoon uh viewing and listening um so that was that was part of the problem also the fact that uh Tucker Carlson disparaged Fox management um, and that became public he did it on Twitter and on uh on a number of emails and that was about to be introduced as evidence I think that there was a lot of, Uh, shall we say, disappointment in the management suites at Fox. And so they decided that maybe Tucker Carlson wasn't just worth the candle, as they say. And -hmm. they let him go. And his senior executive producer has also left the building at the same time. So I'm not sure this is going to be a sudden change of, um, of direction by Fox News. I mean, they basically have been going down this road for a number of years. Bill O'Reilly, who pre- preceded Tucker Carlson, was let go because of allegations of s- sexual abuse. Uh he was replaced by Tucker Carlson. Who will replace Tucker Carlson is mm-hmm. going to be a lot of speculation. Now, the interesting bit of gossip, and so this is entirely unverified, but a I saw it in the media, so it must be sort of true, which is the, that Russia Today has offered Tucker Carlson a show. Oh my. Now that may be oh wow. That may be too weird to even contemplate. Yeah. But it it's been popping up here and there. And the other thing that's been popping up is that Donald Trump might be interested in having Tucker Carlson as his running mate. Oh,
3: there you go. Uh, all right, so um, my moral of the story here, and, and you tell me if it's the same, if you're costing the company money, you're gone at and, the and end of the day. If you're costing his lawsuits more than you're making, you're gone. Um, is that accurate?
4: I think so, and the other the other issue is that Tucker Carlson was great pals with Lachlan Murdoch, who is mm. running the Fox Empire. Right, um, and so there is a succession kind of struggle going on as to who is going to replace Rupert Murdoch, the father and the boss, when he decides to leave the business. So he's fairly elderly at this point, so the question is who is going to replace him, and. The fact that Lachlan seems to be on the outs with his dad uh, may mean that that Tucker Carlson read the tea leaves and said, this ain't for me, and if they're going to get rid of me, maybe now's a good time to go. Uh,
3: Don Lemon out at CNN. I remember the comments he made uh, in regard to Nikki Haley and age and such, uh, misogynistic issues there. Your thoughts?
4: He's not a good team player, is the line on him. And his female co-hosts on his program uh, had been complaining about his uh, unwillingness to take direction and his kind of headstrong attitude. I mean, (laughs) you and I both know that uh, this is not a business that is short on egos, right? And Mm -hmm, uh, so that when there was a clash of of egos inside the uh, CNN family, uh, it could only be tolerated for so long. So that that was another decision. Uh, CNN doesn't look very good on this because they didn't talk to him directly. They contacted Don Lemon's agent and said, "Oh, let your let your client know that he's fired." Which is not exactly the best way to to take your leave anyway. So there's a there's a lot of anxiety at at CNN about the way in which he was informed that he was out. All
3: right, Jeff. Only got a few seconds left. Your thoughts here. I I know you said you were not going to see you predicted not to see too many changes. But have we learned anything from today?
4: I don't think that there is a crisis of conscience here. I think there's a crisis of the bottom line in both instances Uh, this is not going to result in a big uh, cultural shift in either organization we're just going to get more of the same
3: trump and carlson boy i'm going to have bad dreams tonight i think jeff thanks for that (laughs) jeffrey morkin with a senior fellow at massey college former director of journalism at the university of toronto scarborough uh and author of trusting the news in a digital age we'll chat again jeff thanks for the time be well sleep well (laughs) i'll try the federal public service uh, strike is in day six at this point. Doesn't seem to be a lot of movement. Uh, I believe that uh, a bit of a stalemate at this point, a lot of yelling going on. Uh, Howard Levitt says, and well, before we get to that, um, many have said over time, although we always get fixated on the money, and much, uh, much of this, as much of this is uh not only about money but about working from home and those situations that uh we found ourselves in over the global pandemic and of course some companies have moved towards that where it fits uh others maybe not so quick and the government seems to be stuck in that the de- in that debate right now howard Lovett says Oh, we've, we've lost him again. Okay. Okay. All right. We're getting him back right now. Uh, Howard Levitt is uh, coming with us, a senior partner, employment and labor lawyers with offices in Toronto and Hamilton and practices in uh, eight different provinces. and author of six books has talked about how uh, this negotiation and whatever comes out of this in regard to uh, uh, working from home and the, as well, uh, compensation that goes into this could be a Pandora's box and could change a lot of things moving forward a once in a generation situation he has described it as and whatever happens and many have said whatever happens with this could set standards uh, moving forward whether it is in regard to how much of a monetary settlement or uh, working from home as well Uh, is howard with us yet how long can I top dance here? Uh, and, and again, obviously, this is a big issue. So uh, the government has offered uh, 9% over three years, 3%. They want uh, 13.5% over uh, the same three-year period. Many would say, boy, a lot more than I'm getting. So whether it's working from home or the wage, uh, this could be a, a precedent-setting uh, settlement here. Let's bring in Howard Levitt. Howard is with us now. Howard, thanks for the time. Hope you're well.
10: Well, actually, I'm just walking with the emergency ward, so I'm in Mount Sinai in Toronto, so now I'm well. I, I hope everything is okay, Howard. Yeah, I stepped on some glass. Oh, man. never fun, and I don't recommend oh, it to man. anyone. Oh man!
3: All right. Uh, well, heal. I hope you'll you you'll be well soon. Oh, I'm um,
10: frozen now, so I feel no pain.
3: That's right. And about a, maybe about an hour from now, it'll be a different story. Good thing we have story, yes. good good thing we have you now, Howard. All right. Yes, exactly. uh, you said that this could be a Pandora's box, a once in a generation settlement. Uh, how uh, or could uh, or will this uh, these negotiations change us? What are you talking about?
10: the reality the workers are dramatically overpaid relative to the private sector people doing the same job not just in salary where they're 18 percent overpaid but in wildly high benefits short work days short work years and gilded pensions instead of and they stayed employed and got salary increases during the covid even when they weren't working unlike everybody else so instead of sitting there and saying thank god I've got this lucky break for having this particular job and been quiet about it, they're going on strike for even more. And worse of all, striking to work from home permanently at their discretion. Well, that's a real problem because the government really heads, it's the it's forefront, it's a leader, what everyone else does. And if we institutionalize working from home permanently, we're going to have a real problem Private employers will have to offer it just to be competitive. The government will, the unions will all demand it, and we're going to have a much less productive society. Uh, many Where have said, going to say jo- "Joey, surely you're not very good at working at home. You work from the office, or this job isn't compatible with working from home. That just won't happen anymore." That and was the next point. To go through the roof too.
3: That was my next point, Howard, was that was can we do something where one size fits all here? Because obviously there's certain jobs and certain employees. Well, this works quite uh, handsomely and is and, and is productive. And then there's others where it's impossible or it is less productive. Are, are we looking at a one size fits all? Because that would seem impossible here.
6: Well, that's what the union is
10: asking for. And I don't trust Trudeau to stand up to the union or capitulate because that's been his history. So we're looking at a one-side-fits-all solution in terms of the unions' demand, in terms of what I think they're likely to get. And that's going to be a real problem for everybody. Quite apart from fueling the deficit. Now, during the recession, and after that, during all of COVID, I'm talking about the recession-induced by COVID at the beginning, you couldn't get public services, even though everybody was supposedly working. Mm. And they just became less productive. Government hired... 87% Eighty-seven percent of all workers hired during COVID were hired by the by the government, or by public sector, rather than the private sector, and it starved the private sector of employees. So there was a real issue that flowed from that, in terms of private sector being unable to obtain workers to fuel. Economic growth.
3: Let me ask you this, Howard. Because many have said, and and you know uh, that you know many have worked from home. They're making it work. Their employers have agreed to it. Why is it working in some situations with the private sector, but it's not working for the for the public? Why can't we do the same in the public sectors we're doing in the private and make it work?
10: Well, the first question is: Is it really working? It's certainly working for the employees. But the only real objective productivity study, which was done by eternity, found that on average employees were 27% less productive per hour working from home. And the longer they worked from home, the less productive they became. And the government's good example of that because we had no productivity in the public sector during COVID, virtually none at all. And sorry, it's just my car. And, um, and we were hiring more and more employees because of the lack of productivity, more and more contractors, more and more consultants, and we still were getting nothing in terms of public service. Couldn't get a passport. Couldn't CRA was dysfunctional. You just couldn't go to any government office and actually expect to find anybody there. It's a joke to try and phone them and actually expect to get anybody answering their phone and yet they had all these increasing number of employees that, because of the lack of productivity from working from home.
3: Has the government course, put in them? In the s- private
10: sector, I don't think it is. I don't think it's working anywhere except for the odd employee who's very good at it and can be independent. But even then, it's affecting team building, it's affecting mentorship, it's affecting lots of areas that are softer than civil productivity and not positively.
3: How has the government made this more difficult for themselves by, you know, since, or in the last of the term of this government, since uh, the Prime Minister came on board, the size of the civil service has increased by 30 percent? How is that complicating issues? If if that hadn't have been done, would we be in a better place to afford this?
10: Well, the reason that it's increased by 30 percent is because of the lack of productivity of government workers working from home. So in order to provide government services, even ineffectively, we have had to hire more and more and more. And, of course, since the, the wage rate in the public sector between 2015 and 2021, the wages paid to the public sector employees went up 52% in those six years. So, of course, you're now compounding, as you're suggesting, high salary increases, which the union's demanding, on top of already bloated public sector wages. Yes, they're making it more difficult for themselves. But the bigger problem, I think, isn't the wages. It's going to be working from home, yeah. which is going to continue to sap productivity.
3: Howard Levitt, Senior Partner, Employment and Labor Lawyers with offices in Hamilton and Toronto, talking about the complications. One size fits all might be difficult. Howard, thanks for the time. Be well. Good luck with the foot. Thanks for
10: having me. I'll do my best. <laughs>
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML.
3: Scott Radley coming in after the 6 o'clock news. Scott Radley's show. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hope you're well, too. Joyous Monday to you. It is a joyous Monday. My wife is walking around
5: in her uh, Boston Bruins uh, jersey. Yeah, well, I think there's medication she can take for that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, what do you think of uh, Matthews getting in a fight the other night? That might have just changed everything. Uh, You know what? I would suggest that having watched that first one, he may not want to get into another one. (laughs) Uh, That was, uh, you know what? There there are... I'll say this, there are certain people um, who hate fighting in hockey. I get it. Absolutely. The one thing though, that you cannot take away is whether you like it or not, it is really hard to fight on skates. Like, when you think about it, yeah, it's hard. It's to,
3: exhausting. It's well,
5: exhausting. Well, it's it's exhausting. It is it is that, for sure, because usually yeah. you're doing it at the end of a shift as well. But, you know, when, when you think about what is involved, I know we're Canadian and most of us have skated and we're comfortable on skates, but when you think what's involved, like, most of us would look awful fighting anyway. Like, we don't have the right form, the right thing. We would look like we were slapping more than anything. <laughs> yeah. And then you do it on skates where balance is an issue and give the guys credit who do this well whether you like it or not it is amazing how they can look and hit hard and be tough and all this in the circumstance it doesn't mean you have to love it it's just it, it is impressive that they're able to put that together uh, I, I just do you think this will
3: change the complexion of the team I call them scared schoolboys after the first game well this certainly
5: toughens it up a bit doesn't it no come on uh, you know what they uh, I don't tally these numbers, but apparently they had more registered hits in the third game than Tampa did, which I, that's very Unleaf-like, at least over the last number of years. (laughs) And so, you know, if that's true, good for them. I I mean, this this is the fine line that, especially these playoffs, because look, it's not about It's not about blaming the refs, but honestly, the referees in these playoffs, for the Leafs, for the Bruins, in every series, across the board, the referees are being shredded in these playoffs so far because there have been so many bonkers calls that you look at and you go, wait, that's a penalty or that's not a penalty? And so you can say, yeah, you need to be really tough out there. You really need to be throwing your body around and crushing guys. But at the same time, in these playoffs where truly, I don't think in any series, I'm not talking about the Leafs, I'm talking about every single series. I don't think a player out there knows what the line is or what is a penalty or what isn't a penalty. Boy, you've got to be so careful because there's some really good power plays and you don't want to be that guy that somehow does that one thing to try and be tough but cost your team a game or the series. Uh, speaking of where's the line, let's
3: talk about the Hamilton Wentworth District School Board a meeting tonight to uh, to debate whether they remove names from uh, public schools in Hamilton.
5: Insanity. Man, Insanity I, I, I just think it's so stupid. Insanity. This is this is this is kowtowing to the lowest common denominator. This, you know is, what? Well, this is outrageous.
3: It's it's easy. It's easy, it's easy. Teaching isn't easy, learning lessons isn't easy. This is the easy way out. Don't cancel, teach. Teach the other side of the story. Give them names as well. It seems this is an easy way out. A bunch of politicians just looking
5: for an easy way out because they don't want conflict. Well,
4: and Teaching what they've come up with, Scott,
5: what they've come up with, I don't have it in front of me. I didn't know you were going to ask me this, but i it, what they've come up with as the criteria for coming up with new names, one of them is like the neighborhood or the energy of the area. What are you going to name your school? You're naming a school after the energy of the ground upon which it stands. We're going to call it what? Like, lightning hit this spot elementary. I mean, it, it, like, it's, it's in. what are we doing? Why in the world, why in the world are we not taking people who have been amazing examples for kids who are going to be in this school and saying, be like this person? And yes, I don't dispute for a second that down the road, you might have had somewhere in Buffalo, the OJ Simpson elementary, and you have to make a change. I get it. That could happen. Sure, sure. But my, the vast majority are not going to be that. And you know, we, this was a big issue a few years ago when the school across from Tim Hortons Field was being named, and the school board initially did not want to call it Bernie Custis. Yeah. And this was despite the fact that the school board asked people to come up with names and the overwhelming favorite was Bernie Custis and they came up yeah. with something else and then had to be almost voted for something else and then had to be almost shamed into it. Bernie Custis checks off every single box that you would want. He was a hero, a sports hero, an educational hero, a minority, a guy who fought against things. It, it, he, You go down the list. He was every single thing. Thing you would want. How in the world is naming a school after him, and he's only one example, not a good thing? How in the world is it better off to call it Tulip School? Or, you know, pick out whatever else you want that's stupid and inconsequential and makes no sense. This is a cowardly cop-out by a school board that somehow seems scared of possibly having something not go right or something go politically incorrect. It's absolutely ludicrous. They should be embarrassed by this. Which is exactly why we need to take a far
3: closer look on how we choose the people who run for school board. Except we don't, because most people
5: people go cast a ballot and they know who they're going to to vote for for their counselor, they've never even looked at the names yeah. for school board. Never even looked. Teach. Don't cancel. Thank you, Scott, as always.
0: Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today
3: podcast. You
0: can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com.
3: That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Danny wrote in to say about government. Workers wanting to work from home. Every sap-sucker should listen to your last speaker, Howard Levitt. That's how things work here. If you cannot get the job done, hire more people. And if they cannot get that job done, hire more. When will the bleeding stop? Government needs to be fired. Never happens, but hey, finally someone thinks like me. Truth hurts, fire them all right from the top.